Welcome to Monsters Among Us. I'm your guide, Derek Hayes. Howdy folks, and welcome to the final regular episode of Season 10. And do I have a doozy for you? Now tonight's episode is jam-packed with tales of danger, mystery, and intrigue. And of course, a few monsters as well. So to set the scene, we begin in the deserts of southeastern California. A near barren stretch of land most longtime listeners of this show might recognize. Please welcome our anonymous caller from the Mojave Desert of California. Hello, Derek. You're my man. I'm calling about a story that happened to my aunt and uncle, who's no longer with us, but my aunt is still up. She was in Southern California, so in the high desert, a place called Yucca Valley. Basically, one night, they came to a stop, and crossing in front of them, they felt the groundscape, was two big, huge creatures. I've done research, I guess it's, it's known as a Yucca Man. Indians call them chalkweeds, is what most I can get from this, but they were too big, he said. He said they didn't want to get out of the car because it would have crushed the car easily, but they walked in unison, and they, they had human faces. And uh, they looked at, at uh, my aunt and uncle, who scared to death in the car, and then kept walking, making the earth shake, walking on all fours, though, like they, kind of like a gorilla motion. And another detail was there was a pack of wild dogs accompanying them, surrounding them, which is like, both of them kept walking into the desert there, and, uh, and it's a certain neighborhood, so even more puzzling on why this thing was just running around. The information needs to be out there of the Dyson's I thank you for the podcast. And, uh, thank you. Thank you, caller. For those that didn't make the connection, the Yucca Man that our caller described is very close, not only in appearance, but in proximity as well, to the Borrego Sandman, the infamous blonde beast of the Anza Borrego Desert, and one of the subjects of our eventual documentary on that region. And as you might have guessed... I've done my fair share of research on these desert dwellers. Yucca Man, Sandman, Zubies, Devils, whatever you want to call them. But I'm keeping much of that close to the vest for now. After all, we have to save something if this film ever gets shot. But that said, in my research I stumbled upon a segment of a television show that I rather enjoy. That episode featured this little-known... Southwest Sasquatch. 
Now, the following clip was taken from the Travel Channel series, Mysteries at the Museum, and features cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman. It's 1962 in the Anza Borrego Desert in Southern California. The 600,000-acre expanse is filled with winding canyons, dense palm oases, and treacherous badlands. Former police officer Ken Kuhn is hiking through this rough terrain when he stumbles across a bizarre set of tracks in the sand. The footprint he found was unlike anything he'd ever seen before. They appear to have been made by some kind of animal, but each impression is more than a foot long and wider than his hand. This makes it much too large to have been created by any wolf or dog. And there are four smaller depressions just above each print, which suggests a creature with four toes. But perhaps strangest of all, the prints run in pairs. This indicated whatever had left them was walking upright. Legend has it, the monster stalks the deserts of California. Now, I've included a link to watch this episode for free over at the show notes. So go ahead and take a look. They give you a pretty good look at the cast the gentleman in the story made of the footprints. A cast that now resides at the International Cryptozoology Museum in Portland, Maine. Now, truth be told, and probably to the detriment of our documentary, I'm glad that footprint isn't the only proof we have that this creature exists. Because it's a comical-looking footprint, if I do say so. But that doesn't mean that our caller's story, nor the stories of countless others over the centuries, couldn't have been real. After all, legend says there's a creature out there. And if things ever get back to normal, Flora and I intend to get to the bottom of it. Thanks again, caller. From my current home to my boyhood home, Up next, we visit with Josh in the haunted hills of Ohio. Hi, Derek. My name is Josh, and I'm calling from northeastern Ohio, uh, your home state. But the story I'm going to tell, it actually occurred in Colorado. This happened in 2010. I was uh, an event decorator at the time. And this woman's father had hired us to travel to Colorado and do his daughter's wedding. And she wanted it done in the the wild. She was like a nature fanatic. So we, you know, set it up outside and it was all like nature themed. Well, her father put us up in a little home. He actually put several of us in separate homes. It was on a ranch. And I ended up bunking with the assistant for the man I worked for. And the first thing that we noticed when we entered the home was we heard a pounding in the walls and I thought something was in the cabinet. So I literally grabbed a broom and I told Sal, I'm like, you got to grab the cabinet, open it and whatever's in here, I'm going to have to like broom it outside because it literally sounded like something was in the cabinet. I was thinking we were going to find like a raccoon or something in there. So when we opened the cabinet, nothing was there. I couldn't explain it. We looked for a hole to see if like a animal had come from the attic or whatever. We did not see anything like that. That should have been a little uh, sign for what was to come. So later that day, I uh, went to bed, 
so did Sal, but I, uh, for some reason, I took the bedroom, the master bedroom, and I decided to shut the door. And I normally don't do that. I don't know why I did it, but if I'm in an unfamiliar area, I always leave the door open so I can see everything. And for some reason, Salvador didn't want to sleep in the second bedroom. He kept saying that he didn't want to be in there because he thought a bear might come to the window. But looking back at it, I think maybe he did not feel right. I don't know. Anyways, he ended up sleeping on the couch. From where I was in the bedroom, laying on the bed, if I had the door open, I could see out into the living area and I could see him sleeping on the couch. But for some reason, like I said, I decided to shut the door. Well, that night I awoke to my name being called and it said Josh and it was kind of like drawn out. It was like Josh and it was kind of like lower and I came to when I heard it again it said Josh and when I looked at the end of my bed there was this figure and it was misty white. It was almost like smoke but it was a figure of a person but I could not see like details like I couldn't see like eyes and nose and mouth. It just looked like a figure of a person. And it looked like either they were reaching back and scratching a spot on their back or something was around their neck. The only way I could describe it is maybe like it was like a, a noose or a rope or something. But as I came to and I was staring, I was like, wait a minute, who is this at my end of my bed? Is it Salvador? So I, I called out Salvador's name. And as I called his name and I was focusing in on it, it just like evaporated. It just disappeared. So then I started freaking out and I was like, Salvador, I started calling his name. I opened the door. He's laying there on the couch and I was literally screaming his name. And I was saying, Salvador, Salvador. And he would not wake up. So I had to collect myself. I sat myself down on the bed, turned on all the lights. And I'm like, all right, is this really happening? And I just collected myself and I uh, said, all right, you're going to go to bed. We're going to keep the lights on. I don't know what just happened, but I remember wedging my shoe into the door. I opened it and kept it open all the way, wedged it in so it could not shut. Anyways, the next day we're out, we're in the driveway and we're putting together the pieces for the wedding. And the mother and the father of the bride come up and they ask us, can we go in and check around the house? And I was like, yeah, you're paying for it. <laughs> and go ahead. And he's like, well, I want to respect your privacy. It was a really nice gentleman. So he went in and he looked around the house and he thought it was really cool. And he came out and I was just curious to know why he wanted to see our home because it wasn't even that like big of a, a home, anything extravagant. But he ended up telling us that that was the first house ever built in that county in Colorado. And that surprised me because I did not realize that it had such a uh, historic like value to it. And it just made me think that, wow, that could probably be a reason why I saw what I saw because it's been there so long. And usually homes that been around for a long time have been haunted or are haunted, but I don't know. I just thought it was pretty creepy. I wanted to share it. I love your podcast. I just stumbled across it. I'm addicted, but uh, I definitely have other stories like some of the people I hear that call in, it seems like when someone has an uh, incident, it's almost like they've had several like throughout their lifetime. And uh, that's the case with me. I have many more. So this will not be the last time that I will be calling you. Thank you so much for uh, letting me get my story out. 
hopefully you can use it in one of your upcoming podcasts. All right. Take care. God bless. Bye-bye. Thanks, Josh. With the popularity of Verbo and Airbnb, I'm not shocked to hear more stories like this. In fact, I've received so many calls about hauntings at those particular locations that I've started a new folder in the MAU vault just for Airbnb calls. Now, most people accidentally book a haunted room, but others can search them out directly. In my research, I stumbled upon a lot of haunted Airbnbs around the country. If you'll indulge me, here are a few of my favorites. Gettysburg, PA, the Civil War Field Hospital. The barn and farmhouse on this historic property were used as Confederate hospitals after the Battle of Gettysburg, so you can only imagine how many ghosts have been spotted there. Prepare yourself for the possibility of seeing multiple apparitions. The host says that she has seen many over the years, but promises they're all friendly. The bedroom you'll be staying in is also decked out in period decor to really put you in the 19th century frame of mind. Book from $116 a night. Cochillo, New Mexico. The Ghost Town Hotel. Rumors of spirits and apparitions swirl around the abandoned old Cochillo Hotel in the ghost town of the same name. The current owner claims to have heard a voice whisper in his ear, and previous residents said they sometimes heard crackling from a wood stove when they were all alone. Brave travelers can still spend the night in this historic adobe hotel at the former stagecoach stop. Check out the abandoned saloon, general store, stables, and post office during your stay, if you dare. Book from $65 a night. And one of my favorites... Denver, Colorado, the Lumber Baron's Mansion. Architecture buffs will love the stately appearance of this historic Victorian in Denver's Potter Highlands neighborhood. John Mowat, a wealthy lumber baron, built the mansion in the 1890s to show off the wood his company sold. Each room featured a different type of wood. As the decades passed, the once affluent neighborhood became a little seedier. The Mowat family moved away, and the house was converted into apartments. One tenant, Kara Kanak, and her friend, Marianne Weaver, were killed in the building. Police suspected the murders were the result of a burglary gone wrong, though they never caught the killer. To this day, visitors still report seeing two female spirits in the Valentine Suite, the exact spot where both women died. You can book that one from $163 a night. Now, ironically, that last one is similar to the place Josh detailed in his story. So maybe we should add his dwelling to this list as well. Thanks again, Josh. Now, if you have a story you would like to hear shared on the show, give our hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or visit the website at monstersamonguspodcast.com and click the Report Your Story tab for more options. And just a quick reminder that the Season 11 premiere is coming up, and I fully intend on covering these water stories. So if you have a water employment story you're hanging on to, now's the time to call that in. 
Now up next we hear from a frequent offender, so to speak. As far as paranormal magnets go, David from Massachusetts seems to rank pretty high. Welcome back, David. Hello, Derek, Addy, and friends. If you've ever seen the movie Feel the Dreams, the following will definitely make you think of it. My name is David, and I live just outside of Boston, Mass. Back in 2012, when Fenway Park turned 100 years old, I found myself really getting into the history of the park. I wondered, who was the first Red Sox player to hit a home run out of Fenway? A lot of people would guess it was Babe Ruth, but he wasn't on the team yet. Turns out, it was a gentleman by the name of Hugh Bradley, way back on April 26, 1912, hit the very first home run out of Fenway. Like a lot of baseball fans do, I decided to visit his final resting place, which is in Worcester, Mass, and pay my respects to him. When I arrived at the cemetery, I was given a map to help find the exact location of his grave. It's also important to point out the day I did this was the exact 100th anniversary of his home run. The timing couldn't have been better. The weather was very nice that day for April in New England. Most important to note, there was no wind at all, not even a breeze of any kind whatsoever. A few minutes later, I pulled up to the section of the cemetery, according to the map, and got out of my truck to look for his gravestone. At first, I could see some of the other names, but not his, so I started thinking maybe I should be somewhere over there instead. I started to walk about 30 feet away when the Red Sox hat that I was wearing blew off my head violently and landed back to where I had just came from. Checking the map again, I realized my hat landed exactly on his final resting place. It was like he was saying, come back, come over here. A few minutes later, I returned to the cemetery office and reconfirmed that was the correct location. They explained, for whatever reason, he does not have a gravestone or even a marker on the ground. How else can you explain why my Red Sox hat blew off my head with absolutely no breeze and ended up landing right where he is buried? To this day, I feel I have a personal connection to Mr. Hugh Bradley the very first Red Sox player to hit one out of Fenway. Thanks, Derek and Addy, for everything you do. Monsters, including some that are green, among us rocks. Thank you, sir. Now, weirdly enough, on the latest Monsters Among Us Beyond episode over on Patreon, I shared a story about a hotel in downtown Milwaukee with a history of hauntings and a reputation among traveling baseball players. It's like any scary movie. I just stay away from it. Major League Baseball's Mike Cameron may be fearless in center field, but when it comes to Milwaukee's Vister Hotel, not so much. And when somebody tells me that they wake up in the middle of the night just out of the blue and they feel like somebody's in the room with them and the door's wide open, that's enough to, to start changing, making some different plans. The hotel is the city's most regal address, an upscale pit stop for business travelers and out-of-town visitors, including many Major League Baseball teams. But some say while the posh accommodations may be nice, the 116 years of history are a little unnerving. The halls are, feel real hollow. 
Uh, the floors are real creepy, like old wooden floors. Cameron swears it's haunted. Minnesota Twins center fielder Carlos Gomez also had an odd experience at the Fister. First, he heard voices. Then he watched his iPod go haywire after he got out of the shower, sending him scrambling for the lobby without stopping to put on his pants and shoes. When he had to stay at the hotel last month, he brought extra protection. A Bible. Several Florida Marlins recently had unexplained odd experiences there too, but few are willing to talk publicly about what they've seen and heard. Now that clip comes courtesy of the Associated Press. I don't know, David. There's just something about baseball that gives off a ghostly vibe. Perhaps it's the pageantry or the history, or maybe it's, as you suggested, the movie Field of Dreams. Either way, it seems to be sticking around. So thanks again for the tale, David. Now our next entry, we venture back to SoCal. The following is Monica's experience. Hi, my name is Monica. I'm calling from Yucaipa, California. And I've listened to all your podcasts waiting to hear of like a similar story to what my brother and I experienced when we were like six or seven years old. I was just listening to the Halloween 2020 episode and the guy was anonymous from Kentucky and he talked about a translucent neon green hand and how he would sleepwalk and unfortunately pee standing up. Now, he's seen a goblin, but uh, that's not exactly what my brother and I saw. So it was back in the 80s and we were living in Torrance, California. And we stood in a two-story apartment and we lived on the second floor. And I just remember my brother used to wake me up in the middle of the night because a glowing neon green transparent arm would appear hovering over our toy box at the end of our bed. And the best way I could describe it is that this arm looked like an incredible Hulk arm and hand. And that was it. It was just from the elbow down to the hand. And it was just this big, bulky, muscular arm and hand. And we wouldn't see anything else attached to it. Now, it was always in the middle of the night, and our blinds would be closed. So I'm just not sure how my brother came across seeing this one night, but every time he would see it, he would wake me up. So we would just go to the end of the bed and we'd be so fascinated with this glowing arm that we would stick our hands like through it just to see if anything would happen. And I don't remember anything happening. And we would just turn the lights on and off just to see it, you know, appear and disappear. And also, too, what the guy said in the Halloween episode is that, you know, he would stand up sleepwalking teen. And I remember my brother doing the same thing. I would catch him in our room sometimes, and he would be standing, sleepwalking, and unfortunately be peeing. So we still visit that story when we all get together. We didn't stay in that house too long. A fire broke out in our bedroom. I don't know the whole story as to how the fire started, but when we get together, like I said, we still visit that story, and... Trips us out to this day. So I was kind of excited hearing that guy's story from Kentucky. Kind of similar, but, you know, nonetheless, I was still excited. 
Uh, we always told my mom when we would see it, but my mom said that she never really believed us. She just thought we were being weirdos. <laughs> so anyways, I'll definitely be calling back with more like Harbor Area ghost stories. Thank you. Bye. Thank you, Monica. This is an interesting report for several reasons. For starters, the tie-in with the call from earlier in the season. Now, that was TJ's entry from Season 10, Episode 9, if you'd like to check it out. Now, it's eerie that both callers seem to describe something very similar. The sleepwalking slash peeing detail is particularly coincidental. But it's also worth examining the actual interaction between the kids and the strange hand. It didn't seem to frighten them much, nor did the children frighten the weird appendage. And the detail about the kids passing their hand through the arm, and it seemingly fading away into light, are also quite striking. But above all else, this and TJ's isn't the first time we've heard about disembodied green appendages. For our first experience like this, we have to venture all the way back to Season 6, Episode 2, where Kelly, from Alabama, mentioned seeing another green glowing body part. Hi, my name is Kelly, and I'm calling to give my story. It's pretty unusual. I've never heard of anybody else having a similar kind of story. Back in... 1999, maybe 2000, in Alabama, in Birmingham. My best friend lived along a really dark, treed, very twisty winding road, old Rocky Ridge Road, if anybody's familiar with the area. And there's a bridge that goes over the highway. And as I was driving across the bridge, just going to my best friend's house at 9.30 p.m., I saw a little green fluorescent butt. I say fluorescent because it was glowing. I saw a little green butt run across the road. It was about a foot, two feet tall at the top of the butt. It had legs and feet. It was like a little chubby. And it flashed across my car as I was driving. I was probably driving about 35 miles an hour. It literally like ran across the road. There was no top half to this little creature or spirit or whatever it was. It moved extremely quickly because it ran across in front of my car in my headlights. There was no top half. It didn't look see-through or anything like that. You know, I never really told anybody about it because it sounds ridiculous. And, you know, it doesn't really match up with a lot of other things that people talk about having experienced, like shadow people or whatever. I've sometimes wondered if maybe it was like some kind of little fairy or even like maybe a leprechaun. But, I mean, I've never seen it again. I revisited the area recently and, you know, it was it was broad daylight. But, I mean, like, I still remember this vividly and, you know, I was looking around just to see like, well, what the heck was this? Because it's just one of those things, like, I cannot imagine what it might have been. It's just very strange, very weird. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. So it seems like TJ, Kelly, and Monica are looking for answers on the same phenomenon. Whatever that is. And of course, if there's a connection here that I'm missing, be sure to let us know. Thanks again to all three of those experiencers. Now up next, we make our way to the show-me state of Missouri. 
please welcome Andrew to the show. Hey, Derek. This is Andrew from Kansas City. How you doing, man? How's the paranormal posse out there? Man, I've been wanting to call and leave a message for a while, but there's this really weird thing about me where it's just, I'm amazing at putting things off, so I've yet to do that. But I do want to call and tell you some of the things that's happened. Uh, as I was listening to the podcast today, I heard multiple times people talking about a uh, shadow figure, a dark entity, but not like shadow people where you're experiencing the paralysis at night and such, but uh, just seeing basically a silhouette of a person. So I was in uh, North Platte, Nebraska. It was later in the year. I was outside having a cigarette, snowfall and everything. You know, it was really bright when the snow is out. You know, the full moon is reflecting off the snow. It's really bright out. So plenty of streetlights. I could see everything. It's no problem. It's not dark. And as I'm standing outside, I look across the street from me at the neighbor's house, and it looks like somebody's moving. And I keep looking at it, and I'm like, am I seeing things? Am I seeing things? I'm not sure. And I make out a person. It was kind of like behind a fence, so I couldn't really see. I was like, you know, I mean, am I just making things up in my head, or what is it? And then there's a fence like a wood fence and then there was a chain link fence and then it comes up to the house and in front of the house there was two pine trees so this whatever it was thing walked across this lawn you know and i can clearly see like a black figure walking but it's kind of like hunched a little like it's kind of checking me out like what are you going to do are you going to come at me you know kind of like it's on defense or something and so it's checking me out and it's just walking slowly across this yard I can see its face, I can see everything, arms, legs, everything. There's no definition to it or anything like that, though. It's just black figure. It keeps walking and it comes around the tree like it walks behind the tree. And I'm like, okay, whatever I just saw is gone, you know? And then I keep looking and it pokes its head like how you looking around a corner or something. It pokes its head around the tree and just sits there and watching me, watching me and watching me. And so I decide I'll have me another cigarette and have a stare down with this thing. I want to see what it is. I didn't get like a scared feeling or anything. I just kind of got a, man, what is going on? You know, like this makes no sense. And, you know, after a little bit, it moved its head back in behind the tree. And then that, that was it, man. It was just gone. So don't know. But it's one of the crazier things I've seen in my life. Take it easy, brother. Brief fire. Hope all for the best. Thank you, Andrew. I'll come clean. It's only after listening to this call several times that this thought came to my mind. Well, first, let me rewind. The first few times I listened, I had the figure pegged as some sort of shadow entity, not unlike the Shadow Man or Hat Man. Many of the clues were obvious, and Andrew himself even suggested it. But like I said, after so many listens, something clicked. He mentioned that the figure was hunched over. He mentioned that it was seen poking its head around a tree. And of course, the bulky, humanoid shape. So could it be possible that Andrew witnessed a Sasquatch-like creature, rather than a shadow entity? The description fits. The behavior fits. And you guys know how much I love to solve one mystery with another. So of course, to tie this all together, I needed another sighting that helped make a few connections. And lo and behold, I stumbled upon the following from the North Platte Telegraph, 
published on Monday, November 27th, 2017. Woman reports Bigfoot sighting on I-80. A Bigfoot sighting was reported Saturday night on Interstate I-80 near Brady. Harriet McFeely of Hastings said she and her friend Robin Roberts of Colorado were driving back from Omaha on Saturday. McFeely said Roberts dropped her off in Hastings and went on her way. A little while later, McFeely said Roberts called her and was excited. Roberts told McFeely she just saw a Bigfoot. She said, I just saw a Bigfoot. He was standing right here on the shoulder of the road, McFeely said. Roberts was at mile marker 197, not far from North Platte around 9 p.m. when she saw the Bigfoot. She said it was really big. He was really heavy and stocky, McFeely said. The Bigfoot was said to be standing inside the fence meant to keep the deer away from the road, only about 20 feet from Robert's car. McFeely said Roberts told her the Bigfoot was at least 8 feet tall. That article was written by Kelly Rowland. So there are enough connections there to keep me wishful thinking. Both encounters took place in the same location, roughly the same time of year, and oddly enough, both involved a fence of some sort. So what do you guys think? Shadow entity? Sasquatch? Or something else? Altogether? Thanks again, Andrew, for sharing the experience. Now, unless Bigfoot is a smoker, I think it's safe to say that our next subject probably falls more on the side of the shadow phenomenon. But I'll let Frank from Arkansas tell you all about it. Hey, Derek and Monsters Among Us fans. This is Frank from Northwest Arkansas. And I have actually a story that I'm not sure if it qualifies as a hometown legend or a world legend. My story takes place back in 1978. I guess I was right at nine years old. My oldest sister just got back from the Navy on leave, and we were excited to see her. So that night, my younger sister and I stayed in the same bedroom as her while she was just telling us stories about what she had to go through in the Navy. And just about, I guess, 20 minutes into her stories, she stopped. She looked at the the bedroom door, and all three of us saw the exact same thing. It was a man standing in the doorway with, as I described as a gangster hat, long trench coat. And this detail I've not heard from anyone else. He was actually smoking a cigarette and you could see him in hell, but it was just a silhouette. He was just a shadow, but you could actually see light behind him coming through. And to this day, it's a story that we all tell around the Thanksgiving table. So thank you so much and have a good day. Thanks, Frank. That's pretty wild. And no, smoking is a detail I don't recall being attributed to any of these dark strangers. So that's certainly a new one on me. Now, Frank also mentioned hometown legends. It's that time of season, folks. Our next episode will be the season 10 finale and our latest installment of Hometown Legends. And you know what that means. I need an extra week to put all of this together. So I'll be dark next week, or will I? Only to return on January 28th with the finale episode. So in short, dark next week and the finale 
the following week. And while I'm ranting and raving, please take a moment to peruse the Monsters Among Us shop. We have several t-shirt designs by awesome artists such as Julian Meyer of Cryptid Zoo, Brett Manning, Jamie Murray, Erie Eric, and Greg Johnson of Double Bit Studio. Not to mention hats, totes, vinyl stickers, backpacks, and much, much more. And don't forget that every penny spent goes to help the show grow. Visit Monsters Among Us podcast forward slash shop on the internets. Well, it appears there are only a few stories left in Season 10. And these ones are quite ghostly. So to kick us off, we begin in New Hampshire, where Cheyenne had some experiences she'll never forget. Hi, my name is Cheyenne, and I just started listening to your podcast a week or two ago, so I'm pretty far behind. But I have some spooky ghost stories that I'd like to share with you, among other things. So I guess I'll start at the very, very beginning, the first time I remember seeing something spooky. So this is back in Milford, New Hampshire, and I was, I don't know, less than five. I wasn't even in school yet, maybe five or six. And I remember taking a nap on the couch in the living room, and I woke up and I saw this woman walk from... We had, like, a game room, like a little toy room that was directly across from the little porch area that you would go down the stairs to leave. We were on the second floor. I remember seeing a person, a woman, with, like, a big afro, kind of, like, 70s outfit. She was so tall, and I don't remember there being a lot of details. It was more like a, a shadow or like an outline. And I just remember seeing her walk from the toy room to the porch area. And I told my mom, I said, Mom, I think I just saw a lady and she had like big fluffy hair because I didn't know what a fro was. I was like five. And my mom said, oh, that's your aunt, blah, blah, blah. And so from a very young age, she kind of taught me that spirits are there. They're real. They're a thing. And you should always be kind to them and and try to communicate. So this house was kind of spooky. There were lots of things that happened there. But I remember I was in the bathroom one day and my sister, I'm the youngest, and my sister was in elementary school. And I remember hearing her and then I saw a little boy run around our round dinner table and he ran from one side all the way around which was like adjacent from the bathroom it was across from the bathroom and I was five so I didn't shut the door he ran around the table and into my brother's old room and I told my mom so I think there's a little boy he ran into Mike's room and so she said did you try talking to him and so I said hello little boy my name's Cheyenne blah 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 like you know, whatever a five-year-old would say. And I never heard back from that little boy. I never, but to this day, every time I think that there's a spirit or a ghost or something supernatural around, I try to make point of saying, like, hello, my name is this. I'm not here to do you any harm. You do you, I'll do me. We'll go our separate ways. Let's just not have any physical interactions. And 
I remember in that room that the little boy went into, my brother's old room, there was a picture of him with one of his friends hanging up on the wall. And this still creeps me out to this day because my sister will corroborate this. She will agree that sometimes when you looked at it, he'd be smiling and sometimes he'd look mad, like fully angry. It's creepy, and I, I know it could be like the Mona Lisa. Like, some people see her smirking, and some people see her deadpan, but this is, like, either angry or kind of smirking and happy. And it was the weirdest thing, creepiest place we've ever lived, and I think it was just chock full of ghosts. So I have tons more stories to share. I'm sure I'll call back. You're doing great with the podcast. I love it. Have a good night. Thank you, Cheyenne. It sounds like that place should be put on Airbnb and added to that list as well. Now, it seems awfully rare for someone to see an apparition, let alone two different ones. So I guess you could consider yourself lucky, Cheyenne. Or perhaps unlucky, depending on how you look at it. Either way, thanks again for the call. And here we are, folks. Tonight's final entry, and this one hails from the road, and was submitted by Trucker Jerry. Hello Derek, this is Trucker Jerry. I'm new to the show, I absolutely love it. I just have an experience that happened to me and my ex-wife when we were dating back in 1997. It was in Holland, Michigan during the summer. We had gone to a party and got into an argument at the party. And at the time, like so many young people, we were without a car. I had a bicycle and she had rollerblades. And we had to ride and skate approximately, oh, I don't know, maybe two miles back to our apartment. And we were almost back to our apartment. And near our apartment, at the one corner, there was a Walgreens. And next to the corner was a large vacant lot, probably, I would say, three to 400 feet long. And then after the vacant lot, there was a school. Across the street, there was a little strip mall. And next to the strip mall, there was like a little pizza place that had like a drive-through that sold pizza by the slice. It was approximately one in the morning, and we were going along and it was very well lit, sodium vapor street lamps, you know, city lights. And we were riding along, and I was in the lead, and she was maybe 30, 40 yards behind me. And as we crossed the intersection, headed towards our home, uh, across the street from us, where the strip mall and the pizza place is, there was a guy that looked like he was looking for, like, redeemable pop cans or something in the trash. And as we approached, he started to cross the road towards us. And when I got even with him, he was in the left-hand turn lane. It was a five-lane road, and he was, like, in the left-hand turn lane. And as I went by, I looked at him, and he was wearing, like, white and either rust or red-colored Western-style T-shirt with the plaid pattern on it and, like, the snap buttons. And he had, like, that 70s kind of... BG's haircut, you know, kind of long, but not like to his shoulders parted down the middle. And as I went by, his face was just right where it was in shadow. Like I could see his hair and the light shining off his hair, but I could not see his face at all. 
And I got ahead, and I got up to where the school was, and I stopped because it just didn't sit well with me. And I wanted to make sure my fiance, you know, was coming along. And she stops, and she goes, why did you stop? And I was like, did you see that guy back there? And she's like, yeah, he was right dead center in the sidewalk. I almost crashed into him. And I looked back, and there was nobody there. This was 1 o'clock in the morning, and Walgreens was closed. Everything was closed. It was quiet. There were no cars around. And where we met this guy was right where the uh, vacant field was. It wasn't even, like, way overgrown. On the one edge, there was, like, a bunch of sand and gravel and whatnot, and it was just a vacant lot. This was a matter of maybe 10 seconds from the time I passed to the time I stopped and she caught up. And we look back and there's nobody there. We would have seen him take off running or something. We would have still seen him. And he was just gone. And that's about when the hair on the back of our neck stood up and we're like, well, let's get home. And we get home and we're sitting there talking about it. And we're like, that guy could not have just disappeared. So we went back and we were looking like in the sand along the edge of the sidewalk and stuff. There was no footprints, no nothing, just like poof of a smoke. We turned around, went by him. He was gone, disappeared. Not sure if that's a ghost story, but that is my experience in Holland, Michigan in 1997. Thank you. Thank you, Jerry. We can go ahead and file this under unbelievable, but not unheard of. The vanishing hitchhiker and its other manifestations are staples in paranormal lore. Now typically it's a young woman that's picked up, but on occasion there will be a variant to the story, and I'm almost convinced that could apply here. Now normally I try to find another story or legend or even piece of audio to share to help ground this story in reality, but I wasn't able to turn up much from that area. But luckily for me and you, Jerry called back a few days later with a few more details. Hey Derek, this is Trucker Jerry again. I thought of a couple more details. After we had returned to where we seen this, I don't know if you'd call it apparition, ghost, whatever, we went back with my roommate and some friends. That was when we were looking around to see if we could find evidence of this person. And we recreated what happened. We had all of us got on the bicycle and rode by and walked at different speeds across the road. And every one of us, we could see in full view, our faces lit up really well. Like there was not a way that a shadow could have just fallen across the face of this guy. And when I had mentioned the way his hair, the way the halo looked around his hair, I was referring to the way that light bends on somebody's hair at night. So we could see that his hair was brown, but there were like some lighter spots where the light was reflecting off the hair. And it was very, very eerie in that none of us could see his face. And then, now this is where it gets into not my first-hand knowledge, but from what my ex-wife said, was when she almost crashed into the guy, I asked her if she could see his face, and she said she couldn't see his face, but it seemed almost like where his eyes should be, there were like glowing red spots, and I don't know if that was her getting caught up in the moment, 
or if she that was what she seen, but it wouldn't surprise me because it was very a very weird and chilling experience for the both of us. And it took us a very long time before we could even discuss it with each other, let alone share it with people. And we also found out later on that there was a young man that was killed by a hit-and-run accident at that intersection in the 70s. We're not sure. It just the guy really had, like, that 70s vibe to him with the, the Western shirt and the way the plaid looked and with, the like, the hairstyle. Like, he had that shaggy sort of like BG-esque hairstyle, you know, that was real popular in the 70s. It wasn't like long. And this was in the era when young people were listening to Nirvana and grunge was king. So it was really such a strange experience. And I hope you can use this in your show. I like where your train of thought is there, Jerry. Try to replicate it. If you can't, There you go. And of course, we cannot overlook the connection Jerry made between the vanishing man and a gentleman that was killed in that section of roadway years before. Now, the only thing that may benefit us further is knowing the victim's name, age, or even finding a photo. And until then, we'll keep our ears open, Jerry. And that's a big 10-4. And that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. Keep the party going by joining our social media campaigns at Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. All audio used in this production is done so under the prediction of fair use. The terrifying music you hear in the background. That's co.ag music and white bat audio. And all audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. Thank you all for listening, and until next time. Tonight's secret story comes to us from my old stomping grounds. Sorta. Now this location is an hour or two south, but my dad runs a route through that area each week. And at any rate, please welcome Sean from Kentucky to the program. Hi Derek, my name's Sean. I'm from Kentucky. I started listening to the podcast about a month ago when have benched my way through most of it now. Uh, I've been thinking about what to call in from my experiences, but since this one just happened, I decided it would be a great time to call it in. 
It uh, was a little past 11 a.m. on October 21st. And currently, I am a truck driver doing deliveries for a beverage company. Uh, And before that, I was a corrections officer. So I'd like to think that I'm fairly observant, probably more so than the average person. It's a clear, sunny day. And I was driving on Route 7 in southern Ohio, probably about 10 miles from Gala Police and uh, Point Pleasant, so in that area of high strangeness. And I was looking out the window as I was going alongside the Ohio River, and there's a bridge that crosses a small stream that then merges into the Ohio River. And I could see some ripples in the water, uh, you know, fish and that sort of thing, obviously. And then I saw a bigger ripple with a dark shadow with it. And up from the water popped a head that was obviously uh, an alligator snapping turtle. They're pretty unmistakable, you know, prehistoric dinosaur-looking thing. But the size of it is uh, what caught my attention. This turtle's shell probably was three foot wide, and I'm guessing four foot long. It was just a huge turtle. And I'm not sure what, you know, the world record for alligator snapping turtles is, but I would guess this one was probably a contender. And I remember recently seeing an article about some sort of cryptid in the Point Pleasant area that is supposedly a very large snapping turtle. And I didn't read the article, but I do remember the headline. So I would imagine I will be looking that up uh, later to find out some more about it. Uh, Love the podcast. You do a great job and uh, can't wait for new episodes. Have a good day. Thanks, Sean. A giant turtle. Now, I've heard legends of giant turtles growing up. When we were kids, we used to catch some pretty big ones in the beaver ponds beyond our house. And I'm talking 20 to 22 inches. And that's huge for a common snapping turtle. Now, typically, they're lucky to reach 16 inches or so from the head of the shell to the tail of it. Now, imagine the much larger and much more dangerous alligator snapping turtle. Now, its shell can reach measurements of three feet, and some specimens weigh in at over 250 pounds. Now, imagine your trash can lid with a dinosaur's head and four stocky legs with razor-sharp claws. But here's the problem. I cannot find a single source that supports an alligator snapping turtle living that far north. In fact, most sources list southern Illinois to be the closest to southern Ohio these creatures get. But as we've learned over the years, and as WLWT, NBC News 5 out of Cincinnati tells us, sometimes dangerous animals ignore those invisible boundaries. In Bantas Creek, you expect to see a crawdad, a small turtle, maybe even a bass, but not something like this. Not seven and a half feet of watery danger. But that's what kids from Hilltop Equestrian Center encountered around 7.30 Wednesday night. This was over there, like, I saw a black shadow, and I could see its tail moving. These young people were in the water at the time. Fortunately, an adult on the bridge spotted something darkly undefinable headed towards them. Rick Turnbull was supervising the cooling summertime fun. It came right underneath the bridge, and it stopped right down here. Vinny Yupa was among the 16 who followed what their elders instructed, getting an overhead view of the reason for that a moment later. He just stuck it out, and we were all 
on the bridge, leaning and looking at his eye, uh, his head, and he was just staring at us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was kind of creepy. <laughs> 171 pounds of creepy. It took four men to load the croc into a truck after a wildlife officer shot him for obvious safety reasons. Because we have kids that aren't even uh, three foot tall in the group. And for a crocodile, they would have been lunch. And of course, saltwater crocs are not native to Ohio or to this creek. Authorities have no reason to think others might be in there. Of course, they didn't know this one was in here either. Reporting live, Preble County, John London. WLWT. Now that's a sizable croc. That body of water, while located the opposite side of the state, is still less than 50 miles from the Ohio River. Now obviously somebody dropped this croc off, but who's to say the creature Sean saw wasn't also someone's recently released pet? Thanks again, Sean. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a good night.